Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning, and thank you for listening to Mornings with Carmen here on Faith Radio. No, I'm not Carmen. She is on vacation. I'm Paul, her producer, but today I get to switch over to the other side of the uh, uh, the studio and actually host the show for you. So again, thank you for joining me. Carmen's off for a few days. I'll be in today. Um, I'm the third string quarterback. Second string will be Peter Kapsner. He'll be in tomorrow through Thursday here on Faith Radio. But same thing we always do, trying to help you apply the mind of Christ to the issues of the day. So I hope you stay with us for the next two hours. Carmen likes to start off her shows with the question many times, where in the word are you? Now, okay, this past week and a half, I've been on vacation. Carmen and I couldn't even high-five each other as we were passing each other. But anyway, uh, she's off on vacation. I spent some time on vacation. And during that time, I still kept up my routine in the morning of spending some time in the Word with Charles Spurgeon. Maybe you've heard of his morning and evening devotional, a classic devotional. Uh, there's an updated version because Spurgeon's English is pretty uh, 19, or rather 1800s. There's an updated version that I think Alistair Begg did, and uh, I, I've been using that. Now, actually, okay, a confession first. There, usually, if you've seen the morning and evening, there's a morning devotional and an evening devotional. Now, since my wife and I do different things in the evening, I did the morning devotionals last year, and I thought, well, wait a minute. I know it's out of place, and I, I hope I'm not breaking any major rules here, but I did the evening. I've been doing the evening devotionals in the morning. And one a few days ago, which will tie into our conversation here in a little bit, was Spurgeon's reflections on Psalm 102, 102, Verses 13 and 14 is where he focuses on where it reads, You will arise, talking about God, you will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come, for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Here's what Spurgeon writes. A selfish man in trouble is exceedingly hard to comfort because the springs of his comfort lie entirely from within himself. And when he is sad, all his springs are dry. But a large-hearted man, full of Christian generosity, has other springs from which to supply himself with comfort besides those which lie within. He can go to his God, first of all, and there find abundant help. Also, he can discover arguments for consolation and things related to the world at large, to his country, and above all, to the church. David in the psalm was exceedingly sorrowful. He wrote of himself, I am like an owl of the desert. I am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. The only way in which he could find comfort was to reflect on that God would arise and have mercy upon Zion. And though he was sad, yet Zion should prosper. However low his own estate, yet Zion should arise. So, learn to comfort yourself in God's gracious dealings toward the church, Spurgeon writes. "That, uh, That which is so dear to the master, should it not also be dear to you as well? Though your way be dark... Can you not gladden your heart with the triumphs of Jesus' cross and the spread of his truth? 
Our own personal troubles are forgotten when we look not only upon what God has done and is doing in his church, but on the glorious things he will yet do for it. So try this. When you're downcast, having a heavy spirit, forget yourself and your little concerns and seek the welfare and the prosperity of Zion, his people. When you pray, don't permit your petitions to, don't, rather, don't limit your petitions to the narrow circle of your own life, tried though it may be. But send out your longing prayers for the church's well-being. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem and your own soul shall be refreshed. Now, seeking the welfare of the church, that's something we do. Sometimes, though, we can do it in ways that actually under, undermine what God has called us to do. And I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit with John Dixon in one minute. He's the author of a new book called Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and the evil of Christian history. So stay with us. This is Mornings with Carmen. Again, thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen on this Monday. I'm Paul Perot, guest hosting here on Faith Radio. We do live in such tribalized times, don't we? And often our tribes are fighting with each other in various ways. So what would you do to stand up for your tribe? Okay, let me ask a better question. What did our tribal leader call us to do? And hopefully to help us answer that somewhat is uh, John Dixon, who is joining us from Melbourne, Australia. Author, Well, he's first off a history professor and a media presenter. Uh, there's the Undeception podcast. I want to talk hopefully a little about that later on. Also, there's a documentary he has, For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined, plus his new book, Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. Hey, John, thank you for staying up so late for us, because you're, you're in Melbourne, right? Uh, actually, I'm in Sydney. Oh, Sydney. Right. Okay. I, have a, I have a teaching post in Melbourne, and I, I uh, fly between the two places. But okay. uh, Sid- Sydney is in lockdown, so I don't get to fly much at the moment. Oh, that's right. I heard about that. You're, you're back under lockdown. Uh. <laughs> yeah, we've had a Delta outbreak, so uh, we're, yeah. uh, we're in lockdown. Yeah, we're seeing some Delta surges around here too, but hopefully um, hopefully that won't be as bad as what you're having, having to deal with right now. Well, mm. as we look at your book, um, Bullies and Saints, i got to start off because you tell a story in there about how a few years ago in a Sydney theater you performed a piece of Bach music on cello and you had never studied cello as a kid. You only had like five days practice. You had family and friends there and a cello master musician. Were you that sure of yourself? <laughs> uh, no, I, I knew I knew how it would go. Um, I had one lesson five days before I had to perform this, and uh, I had to perform it in front of cameras too. Oh, but, uh, the the point the point that uh, we were trying to make is that uh, there is a beautiful cello piece written by Johann Sebastian Bach called the Cello Suites. Many of uh, your listeners will know it. And uh, the prelude is one of the most sublime melodies you will ever hear. And yet, if you hear someone who doesn't know how to play it, uh, play the cello, uh, you might be forgiven for thinking Bach didn't know how to write a piece. And so what I was trying to illustrate is that you can have a beautiful melody 
performed badly and you might think uh, poorly of the melody itself. And this is a metaphor for the whole of church history, really. Mm. Christ wrote the most beautiful melody that <sighs> has ever existed. But Christians have sometimes performed it well and other times, in the case of my cello playing, badly. Now, I love the chapter where you talk about the melodies of Christ, and there are two key ones. Uh, I want you to tell us about those. Uh, the image of God, that yes. is, every human being made in the image of God, uh, considered by God to be precious, that changed our world. Ancient Greeks and Romans didn't believe that. Uh, ancient Jews did. And the early Christians, who were all Jews, uh, certainly believed that, but opened it up to the whole world and took this high view of humanity everywhere they went. The other idea is the love of the enemy, which, of course, is not just something Jesus said uh, in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere. It's the whole melody line of his uh, ministry. He loved his enemies and gave himself for us. And those two themes uh, went out into the world as this you know, gorgeous eternal melody. And Christians performed it beautifully in, uh, in every century. And there were other Christians who performed it terribly in mm. every century. Yeah. You talk about the early centuries of the church and where um, the church played it very well. Um, mm. So, Tell us about that time period. In that time period, Christians have no power. Uh, they have got no armies and so on. But they didn't feel like weaklings. Actually, they thought they'd already won because Christ has already conquered death and sits at the right hand of God. And so the Christians in the, say, second century, the century after our New Testament, and the third century, were this weird combination of highly confident and very humble. And so uh, the Romans periodically tried to persecute them, sometimes uh, in quite severe ways. But the Christians just smiled sweetly back and got, in, got on with uh, establishing charities, uh, freeing slaves and starting hospitals. And uh, those first three centuries are a beautiful example of how when the melody of Christ is sung in tune, it changes the world, and it really did change the Roman world. Mm. We're talking with John Dixon. He's the author of the new book, Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History. In case you're wondering, yes, we do have copies to give away. So if you want to text just the word book, B-O-O-K, the word book, to 877-933-2484, you'll get a kickback message, click on the link, enter the drawing. We'll be giving those away later today, but you got to get your name in the hat. So do that by texting the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll continue talking with John Dixon in just a moment. Again, author of the book, Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. So stay with us. This is Mornings with Carmen. tuning in for Mornings with Carmen here on Faith Radio. Carmen is off for a few days. I'm Paul Perot, her producer, but today I get to be the host and I get the opportunity to talk to John Dixon, who again is the author of Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History. And again, the first three centuries, John, of the church 
Overall, I mean, I remember my church history. There were some there were some issues that came up, and even in the first three centuries. But overall, from the world standpoint, as they were looking at the church, they saw something different. They saw something beautiful. We were playing the melody of Christ well. What changed? Well, there were two great changes. One is uh, Constantine becomes the emperor. And uh, he becomes a Christian at the same time he gains power. And he credits his military victories to Jesus. He uh, had a vision and he interpreted it as uh, a sign that he should be a Christian. And so he uh, converted. And uh, he suddenly invited all the church uh, priests and bishops and so on uh, to the seat of power. Now, he didn't force Christianity on the Roman world. But he did allow the bishops to have a degree of power. And look, for a couple of generations, Christians were great with that. They used their power to establish more uh, hostels and hospitals and anti-slavery programs. And they evangelized. They did really well. But by the end of that century, a couple of generations after Constantine, now the emperors are banning all other religions. They're beginning to persecute the Jews. They get enough taste of what it might be to force people to be Christian, that they start to do it. And they do it on such a large scale that it's really, it's it's quite shocking. This is not to say that there aren't wonderful uh, Christian leaders in the middle of all that, say in the 5th century, the 6th century, the 7th century, and so on, who call the church back to its original principles of humility and compassion, treating everyone as though they're made in the image of God, loving your enemies, all that stuff. Um, and the church would reform for a while and then fall away. And then God would raise up another leader and reform the church. And, uh, you know, so the whole story of Christianity through the 2000 years that I trace is really a story of how the beautiful melody of Jesus is played and sometimes uh, drowned out by other stuff, but somehow always comes back. Hmm. Yeah, that was the interesting thing to me because, Okay, you, you start out your first major chapter, you're talking about the Crusades, which a lot of people look at, and that was probably <laughs> one of the low points of our melodic uh, mm. redoing. You, you spend a lot of time there, and I don't want to go too much into the Crusades because we know the bad history there, but in the midst of that, I was surprised when you brought up St. Francis of Assisi. I didn't know that he, I didn't think of him in that time frame even dealing with the Crusades, but y- you said he did. He sure did. Um, (laughs) Francis was uh, one of a kind. And one of the things he did is he went to the front line of the Crusades. And uh, this is when the front line was in Egypt. And he condemned the Crusaders as uh, godless and insisted that he could go behind enemy lines and seek to convert all the Muslims to Christianity. (laughs) The crusader leaders, the European Christian leaders, thought he was mad and said, no way, pal. Uh, But he said, well, uh, the next battle you're going to lose. And whether that was a lucky guess or a prophecy, uh, they did. The crusaders did lose. And they decided to let uh, Francis go. And he did. He went behind enemy lines. And for about a week, he tried to evangelize the Muslim leaders in Egypt and invite them to accept Christ. It didn't go so well. He got beaten up and tortured and uh, was nonetheless allowed to live. And he went back, you know, with his tail between his legs. But he's an amazing example of how right in the middle of Christianity's sort of most violent period, 
you've got some people who can hear the melody of Christ and uh, want to use the weapons of preaching the gospel instead of uh, the weapons of war. Mm. Again, we're talking with John Dixon, author of Bullies and Saints. We do have copies to give away, 877-933-2484. Text the word book to that number. Text the word book to 877-933-2484 to get in the drawing. Uh, we could spend a lot of time because there's 2,000 years of history we could talk about, John. <laughs> yes, um, but yes. I want us to fast forward to today. And mm. how, how do you see the church right now? How are we playing the melody? Well, how are we not? Well, I mean, perhaps the greatest tragedy of all of Christian history, even greater than the Crusades and the Inquisitions, is the uh, child sexual abuse mm -hmm. scandals, which isn't just a Catholic thing. I mean, you know, some of us Protestants say, oh, that was just the Catholics, but actually the data is in. There's uh, child abuse going on in Protestant churches and cover-ups. Um, and I think that is perhaps the greatest evil, and that's that's in this last generation. We're, we're living through what 200 years from now people will look back on and think of it as our crusades, you know, our, our great moment of evil. Um, on the other hand, uh, Paul, um, it is overwhelmingly the case, and, you know, atheist sociologists will agree with this, that local churches are the backbone of social capital in your country and in mine. Christians are the ones who are establishing um, hostels and um, uh, poverty services and food services in the cities. Uh, Christians overwhelmingly are caring for the vulnerable. So right in our very moment, you have the best and worst. You have mm -hmm. the melody of Christ still being played and played beautifully and sometimes badly out of tune. Yeah. I was thinking about, I think it was about a year ago when, was it Houston got really hit by hard by some storms, uh, some hurricanes. Mm. But the churches down there, as diverse as they were, were already well-networked together. And so it was, I wouldn't say it was seamless, but there are people, boots on the ground, active right now. I also saw a news article about how there's flooding happening in uh, in Europe because uh, they've, they've had heavy rains in Western Europe. Mm, and yet yeah. the churches are active, helping out those in need, opening up their buildings to those who are doing the the. Uh, rescue work and the restoration work, so they have a place to be sheltered for a while. The church has always been active like that. It has, and, and that's the real beauty of church history. I mean, church history isn't these great emperors like Constantine and great events like the Crusades. Church history really, in the end, when, when the Lord pulls the curtain back and we see things as they really are, it's local churches on the ground doing beautiful things like you just mentioned in Houston, when we had our massive fires here and a year and oh, a half yeah. ago, um, you know, churches were um, on the fire lines, uh, bringing food and water to people and to the fireys. Um, and this was reported on our news and the church doesn't normally get very good news <laughs> in Australia. Uh, but but that is that is the true story of church history. Local churches doing their best to sing the beautiful melody of Christ. Mm. Well, John, at the end of your book or toward the end, you talk about the last few centuries, just of world history and how violence was uh, fueled not just by religion, but by non-religious movements. You know, you can think about communism, the Stalinism purges, the Chinese communists, great leap forward, among other things, where wow, massive number of people died in 
prison or killed because of these movements. And, you know, there's often this temptation for us to say, well, what about that? I mean, you, you pick on us Christians for being so bad, crusades, all this. What about you have a good caution about not doing the whataboutism. I want you to delve into that because I thought it was so important. Yeah, well, I mean, it's true that um, Stalinist Russia um, killed upwards of 20 million people, uh, the same or more under Mao, um, Pol Pot. You know, these atheist regimes did, did kill a lot of people. Um, but but I really do caution, you know, just doing the numbers and working out by mathematics, you know, who killed fewest people. Um, because what this reveals is that the problem isn't religion or irreligion. The problem is the human heart, the human heart in possession of a passion that isn't restrained by anything. And when uh, the church has a passion for power or land or money and it pursues it unrestrained by the gospel, it's terrible mm. and, and it leads to terrible things. When political ideologies aren't restrained by some you know, principle of love and care, then it, it leads to terrible things. In the end, the problem is the human heart. And that's what brings us back to the gospel, because that's what Christ came into the world to do, to die on our behalf, rise again, so we might be forgiven and transformed so that we might play his beautiful melody of love in the world. Mm -hmm. John Dixon, again, author of Bullies and Saints, uh, his latest book. Again, if you'd like to get in the drawing, 877-933-2484 is the number to text the word book to. So text the word book to 877-933-2484. Hey, John, thanks for joining us this morning on Mornings with Carmen. Paul, a real great pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, we'll be right back. Okay, I was on vacation the last couple of weeks. I tried to stay disconnected from the news. Didn't work too well. I, one news item that jumped out at me was the fact on Wednesday this past week, Dictionary.com, they um, re, they updated their their list of words, adding 300 new ones, saying that they realize how society is changing and at the same time revealing new boundless creativity and ingenuity. And two of the words that were highlighted in the change, and uh, Ryan, you, you, you knew one of them when I asked you about it. But first off, there was actually you knew both of them, but oof. Anybody who's watched the old Batman TV series from, with Adam West back in the 1960s would know oof anytime there was a good gut punch. Oof. Yeah, okay, we knew that. Yep. Then there was yeet, and you knew that one. Yeah, I I don't use it personally, but I've I've heard it used from time to time. Yeah. Okay, I've never heard it used. Yeah. So, but yeet, it's an exclamation. Actually, there's two meanings. Um, it's an adjective uh, interjection, you know, meaning yay, or it can be to move quickly or move oh, some yeah. quickly. It, it has both meanings. And I thought, okay, now I vacationed in the UP of Michigan, all around all those Upers, and I spent many years in Fargo, and so that northern U.S. You know, that, uh, that, that talk there. And a word like oofta, it's been around for years. So I thought, okay, obviously, dictionary.com recognizes oofta. No, they don't, much less betcha, which they do not 
recognize. I think we'll have to petition them to add a couple of words. Anyway, stay with us. I'm Paul Perot filling in for Carmen on Mornings with Carmen. She's off for a few days. Uh, When we come back, we'll be talking with Daniel Bennett. Again, as we try to apply the mind of Christ to the issues of the day, a lot of news happening, especially out of Washington. Dan Bennett is a uh, political science professor at John Brown University. He also is the host of the Uneasy Citizenship Blogs. We'll get to talk to him in about five minutes here on Faith Radio. Often run into parents who are anxious about their teen's dating life. Do you ever worry about their choices? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Perhaps your child is in middle school and you're thinking about what's over the horizon. Or maybe you're struggling with the decisions your 17-year-old is making with her boyfriend. Consider these quick guidelines that may help you navigate the process. First, get on the same page with your spouse as to the dating rules for your kids. Second, talk openly with your teen about those rules and what you expect. Finally, consider loosening your grip in appropriate ways as your child gets older. As you learn to balance trust with boundaries, hopefully your son and daughter will make wise choices in the friendships they pursue. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Again, thanks for listening to Mornings Without Carmen. She's on vacation for a few days with, with her husband. And I'm Paul Perot, usually the producer, but uh, third-string quarterback. Peter couldn't make it in today. He'll be in tomorrow through Thursday here on Faith Radio. Joining us now as we try to apply the mind of Christ to the issues of the day news-wise, I have Dan Bennett from John Brown University. He's also a uh, blogger at uh, the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Actually, you just go to, uh, what is it, danbennett.substacks.com. Is that right, Dan? Well, Daniel Bennett. Daniel Bennett, you're right. right. Yep, 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 yep. Okay, my bad. You just got back. You're a little jet lagged, you said. Yeah, we were on San Diego time uh, for the last couple of days with the retreat uh, out there. Um, But my goodness, it's good to be back. (laughs) Missed our kids. (laughs) I bet, I bet. Of course, you're talking with a lot of people in the area of uh, faith and public life, which is really where you uh, like to hang your hat. And good conversations, I heard. But let's have some of those conversations right now. One of the big news items that I even heard this morning when I was listening to some news driving in had to do with these infrastructure bills as uh, Washington is looking and there's the push by President Biden to 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 expend large amounts of money to boost quote unquote infrastructure give a bit of a rundown of what's happening lately so this is one of the plans that uh, President Biden had run on uh, during the election. It's actually something that President Trump had run on back in 2016 uh, for for several decades, uh, saying that American infrastructure needed improvement. It wasn't really controversial if you look at the, the state of roads and bridges and other physical items of our infrastructure that we use on a regular basis. It, it needs improvements. That's That's for sure. Um, and uh, it was kind of a joke during the Trump administration that uh, there would be a regular, almost a weekly rollout of a new infrastructure pledge, but nothing would actually happen. 
And so uh, the Biden administration has said, yes, this is something we're going to make a priority. But the controversy is now, of course, is what constitutes infrastructure, right? Is it just roads and bridges or is it other projects that could be somewhat massaged into the description of infrastructure? And that's where the controversy is coming from, from Republicans. Okay. And so there are two bills, so to speak, that are out there right now. Now, one's bipartisan. Tell us a little bit about that. So that was a bill that was negotiated uh, with the White House, Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans, um, you know, more moderate or uh, less, uh, for lack of a better term, Trumpy Senate Republicans, maybe, who see this as an opportunity to score a win for their constituents and and the country as a whole. And this would uh, do things that are largely considered to be traditional infrastructure. It would be uh, not as expensive as the other bill that's floating around out there. but uh, it's still kind of a heavy lift because you do need to get over the uh, the filibuster requirement in the Senate. The other bill, uh, it, it, I think you'll you alluded to, is much more expansive than mm-hmm. that one. <laughs> well, it, they, they even term it as social infrastructure. Right. Yeah. So this one would include uh, not only the infrastructure uh, for roads, bridges, Internet, stuff like that, but would also include, uh, I believe, universal uh, pre-K, child care, uh, community college Uh, two years of community college paid for, things that, uh, you know, might be popular with some folks, but it's really hard to see how they're connected to infrastructure in the way that it's defined uh, in the previous bill. And what's even become, well, okay, what's part of the problem is this second infrastructure bill, how they're planning on passing it. Yeah, and so... uh, Yeah, that's difficult. Um, So the reconciliation package, I think, is what you're referring to. Right. Um, right. And reconciliation is a budget trick that that both parties have used in the past. And it's a way to circumvent the filibuster and and be able to pass a bill with just 50 votes or 51 votes if you don't have if you don't have the White House. And uh, it is it is it is designed to be used for things affecting the budget so that if there's a crisis that we can, you know, Senate could just pass a budget bill. Um, but the trick is uh, the Senate parliament and this is getting into the weeds a little bit, but the Senate parliamentarian is a nonpartisan actor who uh, will judge the bill and anything that in the bill that doesn't have to do with the budget, she can strike out and say, no, you can't use it reconciliation on this. And so that's the danger that Democrats are, are, are uh, tinkering with here. The parliamentarian could look at this and say, yeah, that's not going to work through reconciliation. <laughs> Okay. Actually, okay. Driving in this morning, uh, Senator Klobuchar from Minnesota made comment over the weekend about talking about this social infrastructure. And now she's talking about certain election, federal election rules that would be under election infrastructure. And so let's that, that, that I'm using that as a bridge to the next discussion, because not only is the infrastructure bill, but both in Washington and at the state level, Election regulations are just, again, a, a huge battlefront. Yeah, and it, I mean, to, to have one last uh, thing on, on infrastructure, okay. when everything is infrastructure, nothing is. Exactly. Right? So essentially, it's where we're at. Um, but of course, this is in response to uh, the last few years uh, in terms of uh, voting access and expanding voting rights or some states saying, well, we're going to ease back a little bit on that. Um, and there's this battle between uh, certain states and the federal government right now under Democratic control. Who's going to control uh, the election apparatus in the country? And traditionally, it has been to the states. Of course, there are some federal regulations about discrimination, et cetera. Um, but this uh, new proposal from from Congress and, and the Senate would be pretty sweeping in in establishing new national norms for voting.
Mm, yeah, that would be. Now, Texas has been an interesting case study because they've been in this big battle over election rules down there. And, well, tell us about that because that is, it, again, it's one of those situations where they just can't, the two sides just can't seem to talk nicely to each other. Yeah, so th- this this happens every few years uh, in state government. It's always one of my favorite uh, examples to tell students about uh, what politics actually looks like on the ground. Uh, so, of course, there's this tr- there's this controversial bill in Texas, at least this partisan bill in Texas that would, um, you know, roll back certain things in terms of voting, not disenfranchise anyone, but uh, you know, maybe take back some of the emergency regulations that were given during the pandemic. And um, Democrats are seeing that as a as a power grab and as a way to disenfranchise poor and minority voters. Um, Republicans see it as necessary to reduce fraud and, and abuse. Uh, and so in response, and Republicans have a majority in the state government, this it would probably it would pass almost certainly. But there is a provision in the state constitution that requires a quorum of a certain number of members in order for any business to get done. Mm-hmm. So what Senate, so what the, what Texas Democrats have done is fled the state effectively. They said, you know what, we're not going to be here, we're not going to participate in this process, and uh, we're, we're just going to try to try to muddy the waters by not being there and denying quorum. This happened in Wisconsin several years ago. This happened in Oregon a few years ago as well. And it's always amusing to see saying, well, I'm just going to pick up my ball and I'm going to go over across the street where you can't touch me. <laughs> well, I guess, okay, from your standpoint, I mean, how does this as both a a political scientist and also just as one who um, y- you have this Christian conviction about how things are supposed to more better work. I mean, you're looking at this and going, I'm asking, where are you going with this as far as, is there a road forward where there is going to be a little more harmonious interaction in government? <laughs> well, you know, I think that's the goal always. Uh, I, I'm, I'm certainly not optimistic at this point. Uh, but I think as Christians, we, we do need to be wary about taking the extreme positions uh in what we're doing. Now, it doesn't mean we don't uh, stand up for our values, and it doesn't mean that we don't uh, seek to implement certain things in public policy. But if our approach to governing essentially becomes uh, not governing, or saying, well, we're going to, you know, muck up the waters, we're not going to participate in the process, because we don't think we have the power to do what we want. um, That concerns me a little bit, because it just perpetuates this cycle of non-action and inaction. So I think Christians can do this. It's a difficult thing to do. Um, but one of the things I've been working on, right, is this importance of posture over victory. And I think uh, that's something Christians should be holding a little more to uh, in this current age. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Daniel Bennett, again, political science professor at John Brown University, and also uh, he blogs at the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Just go to danielbennett.substack.com. We'll be talking about some stuff that will be hopefully later today, Dan, posted at your at your blog? Yeah, I think it's just about an hour it's supposed to go out. Okay, okay, cool. Well, we'll talk about some of those news items in just a few moments here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Mornings with Carmen. Carmen is off. I'm Paul, her producer, getting to be the host, which is kind of fun because that means I get to talk to Daniel Bennett this time around uh, about, well, 
life, politics, stuff like that. <laughs> Dan, you uh, you have a great blog that's called the Uneasy Citizenship Blog, and every well on most Mondays you have you have a little overview. You call it that's uh, coming up, and one of the news items you're going to be posting later today has to do with stuff that came out of the. Uh, the pandemic, where churches, many of them were closed down and different states handled different things. Um, actually, Dan, it was funny because I was on vacation this uh, past week and a half, and I spent some time in the, up, in the UP of Michigan, and I have a friend up there who's a pastor, got a chance to meet up with him, and I asked how Michigan handled it. And even they, and a lot of people were on Governor Whitmer about the way she was handling the pandemic, but even her Secretary of State said, when it comes to churches, no touchy-touchy. <laughs> So it's, go ahead. Yeah. You see this really interesting divergence in terms of how churches and other places of worship were treated during the pandemic. So in some states, it was very neutral. You know, maybe there were rules about mass gatherings in terms of, you know, uh, we're going to apply. Some some states like mine just didn't touch churches. I left here in Arkansas, and so churches were pretty much free to do whatever they wanted. There was guidance, but nothing legally binding. Uh, Other states treated churches like other large mass gatherings. Um, The key is uh, when you start to treat churches differently than other other mass gatherings. And that's what happened in Washington, D.C., that eventually got Capitol Hill Baptist Church uh, uh, an award of legal fees from the city. Mm -hmm. Talk about that, because Mark Deaver, many people probably recognize that name, very well-known pastor. And now... They handled things in a very, I, I guess I'd like to say, it, it, because they were, were butting heads with D.C., but they showed that they were trying to go above and beyond and do their part. Yeah, 100%. So I think on the on the one hand, you had churches like John MacArthur's in Southern California, where uh, the past, Pastor MacArthur said, well, we're just not going to abide by any of these regulations in California because we have a right to worship, et cetera, effectively challenging the state government directly. What Capitol Hill Baptist did in Washington, D.C. was say, okay, we understand that there's some real concerns about transmission of this virus through mass gathering. So we're going to um, we're going to try to meet outside. Right. Because uh, it's really important for us to meet as a body uh, to uh, to worship to worship the Lord. Um, Washington, D.C., that wasn't good enough. They said, no, we're not going to allow any mass gatherings for any or for any entity. You can't even meet outside and socially distance. We're not even allowed that. However, last summer, if you recall, in Washington, D.C., there were a host of protests around uh, racial injustice and, and uh, police brutality, things like this. And the mayor of Washington, D.C. Uh, not only uh, effectively allowed those protests to continue, she actually participated in those protests. And so when this went to court a few months ago, the judges were pretty convinced that this was a, 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 a situation where churches and houses of worship were treated one way, other mass gatherings were treated another way. And uh, they ruled for Capitol Hill Baptist. And so I think you're exactly right, Paul, that this, they went about it the right way. They didn't just stick their you know, feet in the ground and say, we're never going to budge. They said, no, we'll work with you. But it's a matter of being treated equitably <laughs> in yeah. the system. Okay. Another thing you're talking about is the uh, 2020 religious census that the what is it? The, uh, the Public Religion Research Institute did and some interesting findings. What are your thoughts on what they found as far as the church affiliation of people here in the U.S.? 
Yeah, so I guess the top line finding is that uh, 70% of Americans identify, and this is based on self-identification. Right. So there's a little bit of, there's a little trick, a little tricky with that, but about 70% of Americans identify as Christian as one sort, uh, of one sort or another. Um, of course, this includes Catholics, black Protestants, white evangelicals, white mainline Christians, et cetera. Um, 70%, seven out of 10 Americans still identify as Christians, despite this narrative that um, the culture is becoming more and more in, inhospitable uh, to Christians. Uh, when we drill down into the numbers, though, we see that uh, white evangelicals, right, I think, uh, and this is the community that I would you know, ascribe to or subscribe to uh, personally, I imagine your listeners would probably identify a lot with this community. Um, that only constitutes about 14% of the population, which is a decline in recent years. And as far as any one group, specific group, these nuns, N-O-N-E-S, constitute the largest single group of any group in the country at just about 23%. Um, so on the one hand, Christianity is still, I would say, thriving compared to many other uh, wealthy, advanced countries in the world. But we have seen this uptick in these so-called nuns. And maybe that's where this cultural narrative is coming from. Yeah. And then I look at the nuns. I mean, define that. Because you have yeah. people who, who may say, I don't feel comfortable calling myself. There's a lot of people who don't, do not feel comfortable for various reasons calling themselves evangelical, but would hold to the basic evangelical viewpoints on doctrine and practice. So I'll give a plug to a book from a former colleague of mine. Ryan Burge wrote a book called The Nuns uh, recently. And what he does here is dive into this tip, this tricky term. Um, on the one hand, you have groups like atheists. Uh, you know, that's maybe the, the most common, you know, non-Christian, non-religious label. However, that's a fairly small percentage of the population. Same with agnostic, people who don't know or if there's a God. Um, but the, the, by far the largest uh, of the nuns are what uh, social scientists might call these spiritual but not religious mm -hmm. categories. People who maybe grew up in a church, maybe believe, well, sure, there's a God. I don't really know how to know him. Um, you know, I would certainly call myself religious. I might even pray every once in a while, but it's more of this hodgepodge of spirituality, not necessarily religious in a traditional way. Okay. Well, we don't have much more time, but I do want you to spend a couple of moments because I, I remember that, okay, you have the Uneasy Citizenship blog. There was supposed to be a book coming out. Are you still yeah. working on that or is that still yeah. in process? Absolutely. Yeah. It looks like I have a draft due at the end of the year to the press and uh, it's going to be a look at... Uh, not only how, uh, you know, maybe cr some practical wisdom for Christians engaging in politics, but also as a political science uh, professor drawing on studies in political science to show there are real challenges, uh, not only for American politics, but for Christians in the years ahead. But those challenges should open up some real opportunities for us uh, as Christians in engaging in increasingly uh, difficult public square. All right. Hey, Dan, thanks again for joining us here on Faith Radio and Mornings with Carmen. Look forward to talking to you in the future. Anytime. All right. We'll be right back. Well, again, thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen on this Monday. Just without Carmen. She's on vacation for the next few days. I'm Paul Perot, her producer, getting to serve as your host. Stay with us. Another great hour ahead. And also remember, if you miss any conversation or want to go back or share it with somebody, the, all the podcasts will be available later today at myfaithradio.com on the Carmen LeBird show page. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBird from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.